Hello everybody, welcome to the Docio podcast. Today's episode, hashtag no exams in COVID. On March 24th, UNESCO published an article stating that because of the global pandemic, 1.3 billion students were forced to stay at home at a time where they were expected to be learning that Christopher Columbus discovered the place where people already lived or something. Now, these numbers have since lowered as countries have had time to strategize and find solutions for the youngest to get back to their daily grind. However, as exam season got closer, things got more complicated. What is generally considered the most stressful period for students had now become even less manageable, as in many countries, they were expected to sit for their exams regardless of the mayhem that was going on outside of the classroom. The resistance was probably loudest in India and Pakistan, where students started the no exams in COVID campaign. Millions of tweets were hashtagged to let the authorities know that they were not exactly excited about the idea of putting their lives at risk to validate their year of interrupted learning. The students tried their best to remind their representatives that exams were not the only way to make sure that concepts and notions had been assimilated. But the question of the pertinence of standardized exams is a discussion for another day. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Rogi Khan from the Senegalese American Bilingual School, who will tell us how they have managed to allow their students to navigate this traumatizing period and write their exams while staying safe. I'll also be speaking with Alex Vea from Small Tech, a company which has the answer to the question, how do we allow students to write their exams at home without cheating? Stay tuned. Hi, Rogi. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, Saribu. Um, thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, my name is Rugia Tukan. I am the AP Capstone Program Coordinator and Instructor at the Senegalese American Bilingual School. What does that mean? That means that I lead the AP Capstone Program, which is a two-year program that aims to prepare students for higher level um, academic work. So I teach a two-year program. The first year is a course called AP Seminar that's focused on building critical thinking skills among young people, whether it's through their enhanced understanding of information, the checking of the credibility of sources, and the writing of effective arguments and the presentation of those. And the second year, I teach the AP Research course, which is a, le- a year-long research um, project that students choose independently. And this year, I had students who wrote papers on how technology affects children, as well as how romantic relationships affect students' academic performance. And so it's really exciting because young people, or my students in this particular case, are able to dive into topics that they're really interested in and make a difference um, in their academic and um, social communities. Thanks again, Rogi, for being with us. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, So I have a million questions for you, but first... I'm doing this new thing where I ask you a would you rather question. All right, so here we go. Would you rather be poor and travel the world or be rich and stay in one place for the rest of your life? Ooh, this is a hard one. <laughs> But if I were to answer this question, I'd say that I'd rather 
um, be poor and see the world than to be rich and only live in one place. And I say this because material wealth doesn't actually define happiness. And I've gotten to learn so much from the different experiences that I've had through traveling and being stuck in a pandemic actually makes me realize how much of the world I have not seen. And I don't think that being rich would actually make me a better person or make for a more enjoyable experience if I were only to stay in one place. I think you can really get a gauge on humanity and explore the nature that we have all around us um, in the world. I think we live in a beautiful place despite all the atrocities, despite the terrible things that are going on. And I think sometimes when you're able to get out of your comfort zone is where you are able to evolve the most as a human being. So I would pick poor and able to move around all around the world over being rich and staying in one place. Let's get into it. So, Hogi, what does the life of an online teacher in Senegal look like and what would you say are the challenges that are specific to our environment? The life of an online teacher in Senegal, for me specifically, looks like a lot more flexibility in my workspace and schedule. Before the pandemic, we had all our courses in person, so we physically went to school and were there from 8 to 5 p.m., um, if not more. <laughs> and um, during the pandemic, I've been able to work from home at times or go to an office space and work. Um, and the flexibility in terms of the space has allowed me to be very creative in some aspects. But also this can be one of the challenges because if you don't have a usual working space, um, an environment that helps to facilitate that, you can be faced with many distractions. And as far as the schedule is concerned, um, I used to have class every day with students. And because of our transition online, we've limited them to twice a week per class. And the amount, the time that we also meet is a lot shorter. So I have a lot more free time, um, but transitioning to an online instruction also requires a lot more preparation and being intentional about how you are engaging with students and how you are making sure that they are learning what they need to learn and that they understand this because we don't have that classroom community in person to gauge from one another and benefit from all of those body languages that you, all of those signs that you pick up from students as to whether one student really understands it or doesn't um, versus the students who really get it and are excited about learning. And I would say the challenges, um, there are several challenges. <laughs> I talked a bit about the workspace and the schedule, which can be a challenge, but also in our particular context, internet connection and technology. Um, so at different points in time, the internet um, connection can be spotty or students might not be able to log on to a class and they might miss classes because of a poor internet connection. And then technological issues, I've had a couple of these where either I've been booted out of a session or my mic wouldn't be able to turn on and I'd have to restart. So we've had to reschedule a few of our sessions or I've resorted to recording them um, in a video and sharing it to them so that they would still get the information even though we weren't able to have that virtual live experience where they're able to ask questions um, in real time. So those would be some of the main challenges. But um, it also makes for 
a lot of creativity and innovation. I've had to think outside of the box as far as the assignments that I've given my students, as far as um, the requirements for how they are turning back work. Um, and so with challenges, I think comes for new solutions and seeing new ways of doing things. And that to me has actually been quite exciting. Um, speaking about new ways of doing things, please tell us a little bit about how you've been able to help SABS transition to online learning. I've been able to help SABS um, transition to 100% online instruction through the promotion and use of Google Apps. I'm a big fan of everything Google and have been using Google Classroom with my students um, for the past three years. And that has really familiarized themselves with an online learning management system where all of our assignments are submitted online directly through the Google Classroom app. This is something that they can log onto from their Gmail account, but it's also an app that they can have on their phone where they get notifications when assignments are due, they get reminders, they're able to ask questions, we're able to have online discussions. And the other apps that we also used um, for collaborative um, assignments and experiences are Google Docs, Google Slides, where students create presentations together. We also use Google Spreadsheets and Google Forms, especially for my students doing research. They've had to administer a lot of online surveys and Google Forms has been very instrumental. I've done a lot of my class sessions through Google Meets, where I use the screen sharing option to be able to share the information that I have and we've been able to engage in very lively discussions Recently, I had a discussion with my students around the Black Lives Matter movement, and it was all through Google Meets. And I do one-on-one -on -one calls with students when they need more particular, when they need more attentive um, attention. When um, they have a particular issue, they can call me on Google Hangouts, or we can have a quick um, chatting session. For each of my classes, I've created a chat um, group through Google Hangouts. And so I would say the best way that I have influenced transitioning to an online program has been through the use and promotion of Google Apps. And I've made sure that I'm here as a support person for anyone who wants help on being able to use Google Classroom effectively and all the other apps that Google provides. So that's the big win for me. Um, listening to your answer, listening to your answer this question just makes me, I mean, it's just, it's obvious how important embracing innovation is. I mean, your students have a huge advantage in today's chaotic, well, because they were already used to these platforms and they'll face much less stress than those who are not only dealing with the pandemic, but also expected to keep learning and learn new tools and write their exams. Well, um, they're lucky to have you. Now, speaking about writing exams, how have your students been adapting to having to write their exams online? And um, also, I wanted to know, have you heard of about the no exams in COVID campaign? And what do you think about it? We just finished our exams this week, and I think it went pretty well. I had my last exam with my students yesterday, and um, overall, I the feedback that I have gotten from students is that the format was well adapted to what we have been able to cover. So I used the Google Forms as a means to administer a test, and I think the students were pretty comfortable with that format. 
And still, there are many ways that you can be creative about creating a test that isn't just multiple choice, but that allows them to share their thoughts um, and reveal how critical they are as thinkers. Um, and this is for both of my courses. Now, one of the major concerns as far as testing has been um, is as far as with testing has been controlling for cheating. And I think this is an area that requires us to do more learning and development in this to find solutions to control for that. Um, but on the student level, I think they have been quite anxious and stressed <laughs> all around or throughout the whole exams period because, again, those same issues come back where with a poor internet connection or technological malfunctions, if they get logged out, then that means they have to start again. As a teacher, um, I connect with them over Google Meets and I'm able to answer any questions that they have live or in real time and also adjust. So you have to be a bit flexible with allowing students perhaps a little bit more time to finish an, an exam if they were able, if they were logged out. Um, again, I don't think there's been any perfect way of going about this, um, but we've done the best that we can. Uh, yeah. I hadn't actually heard about the no exams in COVID campaign until, um, uh, until recently. And I don't know how I feel about it. I think for schools like SABS where students have not experienced any a disturbance as far as their education. I think it's really fair that students are able to take exams and able to validate what they have been able to learn. And for schools where there has been a lot of disturbance, where perhaps it's been really hard for many teachers to connect or many students to connect, I think it requires more um, leniency, perhaps. I, I'm not sure if I would say that discrediting exams altogether is a good solution, although I do recognize that everyone is not in the same conditions. Um, some students literally have not been able to learn and shouldn't be penalized for a lack in preparation or a lack of being able to continue education. I think um, this has definitely called for many people to revisit practices that they've had. I recently found out that Stanford is no longer going to um, requ require the MCAT for their incoming class and other Ivy Leagues in the United States that are waiving some of those tests that traditionally have excluded minorities since we're talking about, um, we talked a little bit earlier about the Black Lives Matter movement and the importance for black educators and institutions. And I think these can be used to our advantage as far as being able to access quality education um, that otherwise might have, um, we, that we might not have been able to benefit from in the past. I do wanna add, however, that online exams have not, are not adapted to everyone. We have students in a typical classroom that have different learning styles, that have different intelligences, and that have different abilities. And an online test might not be suitable for 
each individual. And so with any type of standardized test or any type of test that is only administered in one way, it can be quite challenging. And what we've done at SABS is really make sure that an online exam isn't the only thing that is accounted in for the final grade. So my students have a project where they have to analyze data and be creative in how they use it. They have another one where they have to present a poster and explain their research process. Um, and a third part is also their engagement. So how have they been showing up? How have they been engaging in their learning? And I think this has also allowed for students to be more independent thinkers and independent leaders and taking in education into their own matters. And so I, I don't know how I feel about the no exams in COVID. I think for students who have benefited from the resources and support, I think it's valid and it shouldn't be they shouldn't lose a year because of it. And for students who unfortunately have not been able to have that same access to quality education, I think it's something that we need to revisit. And I think overall, this highlights a lot of the inequalities and the inequities in our education systems and approaches in general. All right, I could ask you about 50 more questions, but I've taken enough of your time. One last question before I let you go. What do you think the future of education looks like post-COVID-19? I actually think the future of education post-COVID-19 is super exciting because it invites us to reimagine how education is conducted or how it's experienced or how it's shared, however you want to qualify that. I think that um, it, 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 it invites us to question, again, the purpose of education, the purpose of schools. How can we make sure that students are empowered in their own learning experiences? How can we um, give students the support that they need all around and families the support that they need all around to make sure that their children are able to learn and thrive. I think um, the future of education looks perhaps more individualized, um, more creative, a lot more flexible. I think it invites more parents and families to be involved in the education of their children. <laughs> I, I, I get a lot of uh, what is called I, I, I like to think or sometimes I criticize schools as being a form of glorified babysitting where students are sent from 8 a.m. to 4 or 5 p.m. and they are with instructors that you know can be questioned as far as is it really conducive to learning or does it kill creativity and I think um, post COVID-19 we're able to address a lot of those and innovate and you know make sure that students are learning intentionally and giving the power back to the learner, whether it's from a very young age at the preschool level and all the way up to university and graduate studies. I think um, post-COVID, we're going to see a lot of changes that, in my opinion, are going to be positive changes. It's going to be challenging, don't get me wrong, and everyone is not going to get it um, right away, and it's going to be a new learning curve for us as far as educators are concerned and school administrators and people who are engaged in education no matter what, uh, at what level or field that they're in. Um, but I'm actually super optimistic about education post-COVID-19. Um,
often in the minds of the people who decide the, the issue of the issue with COVID-19 is not so much about the student's ability to prepare themselves for their exams but it, it's more about how they will ensure that the people taking the exams don't cheat so let's talk about e-proctoring I interviewed Alex Vea, Chief Strategy Officer at Smalltech to know more about this fledgling industry I asked him whether he thought e-proctoring solutions were ready to reinvent the world of examination and if it was realistic to imagine a scenario where most students around the world would write their exams at home during this pandemic and if not, what he thought still needed to be improved for it to be a possibility in the near future. So regarding your first question, if um, e-proctoring solutions are ready to reinvent the world, I would say that um, Online proctoring vendors have been on the market for quite a long time. I mean, the first ones came in 2008, I think, like ProctorU, etc. We have been for also seven years in the market. So I think they are ready, you know, ready to provide that kind of service and and, and be able to, to support institutions. And, and they have done it so for this quite long time. No? It's true that right now, because of the current context, uh, it has been... Um, well, a trending topic, no, right now, but uh, they have been doing it so for for quite a long. And 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 regarding if it's realistic to imagine a scenario where most students around the world would write their exams at home this year, I mean they are already doing it. For example, in Spain, uh, there are no on-campus exams; everything is being done uh, online. It's true that um, the most institutions maybe they weren't prepared. To do to do those exams online uh, first of all for example there in europe in general i think we don't have a a, a, a regulation for online exams because uh, everything has been done always uh, face to face on campus and everything there were some online exams but normally were for um degrees or master degrees that weren't like official no uh, accredited by the public institutions so um uh, Online exams, they are being done right now for all people and, and because of this current context, they can do it on campus. But it's true that uh, this uh, has done like an acceleration in, in, in the digitalization for, for all the institutions. No? Some of them were already prepared and some of them weren't prepared and, and, and they have done it as, as they have um, been able to do that and to provide continuity to the uh, courses no so it's it's has been complicated for for a lot of institutions no they didn't have also the the teachers weren't prepared to uh, provide um, online exams or how to define those online exams how to provide a more secure environment and integrity of of those uh, exams and to the question if um, what do you think if it still need to be improved for it uh, to be a possibility in the near future well i think as I mentioned first, um, what this context has done is to to acknowledge that there are solutions in the in the world that can provide support to institutions to provide that uh, online exams and to have it with integrity. You know, so that I think it's the first step is to get to know solutions that uh, enables us to provide that kind of scenario. No, not just face to face, but we are able to provide online exams with different different kind of platforms, different kind of 
design of assessments and with uh, proctoring solutions that enable you to, to verify and to be certain or the, to have the uh, quality assurance that the student is the correct one and behaves correctly, you know, as you would do in face-to-face. So for the NIF peer also, um, the next step will be also the regulation in some countries or regions. Uh, I mean, as I was saying, uh, online assess assessments weren't uh, regulated. And I think it's a, a first step to, to have more set certainty of what you can do as an institution. If, okay, I know right now that I can do face-to-face, -face, but if I want to provide um, uh, online assessments, on what conditions, what are the requirements regarding the government, for me to, to do those kind of assessments, no? And, and, and one thing will be also regarding the, the, the online pedagogical methodology, but also uh, regarding the quality assurance would be like verify the, the user um, and have the guarantees that during the whole process, he was behaving correctly. Um, where do you think e-proctoring could have the best impact, Alex? Uh, while the offers on the market obviously differ, there are general limitations that have to be shared throughout the industry. So do you think e-proctoring solutions are better suited for primary school, middle school, or even university levels? This is a, a good question. And from where I see it, I think uh, on the lifelong learning, and, and I will explain you why, because uh, Proctoring solutions um, are a key part to enable the fully online learning. What I mean here is that with integrity, obviously. Right now you can learn fully online, but as an institution, you don't know if the person is the correct one or not, no? So I think um, the uh, proctoring solutions will be part of the pedagogical methodology of online learning that would provide that flexibility for, for students, uh, where the student uh, will, will have education as a service, where the student will learn what they want, when they want to learn, and whatever they want. And they will need to combine it with their uh, jobs, with their family, and, and for that they need full flexibility. Uh, maybe they won't be able to, to go face-to-face, -face. they may study uh, at home at night or the weekend, so they need that flexibility to continue learning, no? to continue acquiring that knowledge that is important for their future jobs. So I think there is where the proctoring will be more used on the lifelong learning um, aspect. So not so much maybe on, on primary and middle school, but more on, on university, maybe corporate learning also, uh, etc. What do you think the best way to go is? Is it to go fully artificial intelligence and have machines take care of the whole thing? Uh, do you think it's better to have humans to look after uh, students through their webcams? Or do you think it's best to have a mix of both? What, what if the cost of hiring humans wasn't an issue? What, what do you think the best way to go is? Well, this is a, a, a good question. And then obviously the cost always is, is an issue. no? Um, um, as we have different kind of proctoring vendors where we started of live proctoring, okay, uh, it's a human supervision and, and, and where you can implement and have been implementing new technologies to improve that kind of service and to move to more uh, fully or semi-automatic uh, solutions. It's true that, uh, for example, right now, 
um, a lot of institutions are doing live proctoring, but using Zoom, Teams, or whatever kind of, of um, uh, solutions to watch their student while they are doing those exams from home. But obviously, it's dif very difficult for them to have uh, more than 10, 15 students to watch at the same time and to really know if they are not uh, cheating or, or doing something else. No? So I think right now, obviously, um, live proctoring is at a higher cost as it's uh, more difficult to scale than a more automatic, automatic solution. Also, it's true that um, providing the different kind of security levels uh, as vendor would be great. And, and, and from there, for the institution, decide which one uh, fits best the requirements. On our case, um, we provide both fully automatic or semi-automatic, but not on li as live proctoring, but combined uh, defining the certain uh, level of accuracy of the algorithms. And if they don't reach certain level of accuracy, to have a, a support team, um, not to let everything decide for, for the AI, but not decide and not understand what's happening, but or what is going to happen, but and decide on how to provide those results to the institution. And then the institution have gets the result on an easy way to make take the decision of what has happened for that student, no? what they should do regarding the protocols and, and under what conditions they have defined the, the, the exam, no? what the student can or can't do during that exam. Um, how do you think we could ease the minds of people who are worried about the digital rights implications of having your biometrics used to identify students through e-proctoring solutions? So um, I would say that it's really important to, to comply with uh, data privacy and security regulation. For example, in Europe, um, we have the GDPR that is one of the most strictest uh, regulations regarding data and privacy of, 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 of users. And we fully comply with that. Um, it's important to, to be transparent and, and to um, show what uh, aspects are you monitoring and to tell the students what is going to happen and where their data is stored no? and, and if they have the rights to be for, uh, forgotten. So there are some aspects that in, in Europe we work a lot with those uh, aspects as it is required by the European Union uh, when we talk about biometrics. It's true that also um, you can provide solutions as we talked that doesn't implicate uh, biometrics so on, on that sense, you also not, you also are like having data of, of students, but might not be the biometrics, but images, videos, whatever. No, so independent if you it's not biometrics, um, you always should take into account how to to work and define that workflow of of the data that we are working with. And and, and as I mentioned, first is the also the the consent of the student, obviously, and that. He needs to be aware of what is happening. How we work with institution is that also the institution needs to um, tell the student on what conditions and how will be done those online assessments with which tools and the student needs to accept or have another alternative to do those exams in another way you know, or, or be free of, of choosing how to do those exams. I go crawling through caves and I go digging in the sand I sift through the silt in streams To determine the 
origins of man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Docio podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And as usual, I will leave you with a random fact. Did you know that most breakups happened on a Monday? I'm not sure what you'll do with that information, but here you go. Have an awesome day. Just